0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.
1: So I'd like to invite Ian up. He's going to be uh, preaching today. um, And hands free, we hope. (laughs) All right, so. Uh, I will just uh, pray for Ian and and pray God's blessing upon him as he he shares the word with us today. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you uh, for Ian and thank you for uh, the message you've put uh, put upon him uh, to share with us today. We just pray that uh, you would uh, speak through him. Uh, We thank you that you use us in your ever unfolding story, Lord, that us as as broken humans, you you speak through us and we thank you that... uh, you're able to uh, communicate and convict us in our spirit Through the words uh, of us And so we just pray that those um, That word, that double-edged blade word That um, comes between uh, our soul and our spirit um, would, would come and convict us today as, as Ian speaks uh, And may those um, seeds be planted deep within our heart And may they grow into lasting change, Lord Amen. Amen You don't need that one, thanks I
0: hope I don't need it, going good Okay, you'll notice on your seats there's a number of these handouts we've been doing um, for most of the spiritual disciplines as we've worked through them Um, and the one I want to cover this morning is a Bible study which is a bonus I've decided to throw in there and um, I better get myself properly set up here and ready to go. But uh, I'd like to, uh, before I get started on it, just uh, open in prayer a portion from Psalm 119. Father, this morning we pray with the psalmist, with our whole hearts we seek you. Let us not wander for your commandments. We have stored up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach us your statutes. With our lips we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies we delight as much as in all riches. We will meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. We will delight in your statutes. We will not forget your word. Would you speak to us by your word this morning, we pray, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So finally, a few weeks ago, I got to the end of the spiritual disciplines. And... um, as we're working through them, I think I told you previously that uh, uh, I got to thinking that it might be helpful to do a bonus one on studying the Bible, and uh, and also next week how to listen to a sermon. And but uh, this week, studying the Bible. And let's face it, the Bible is not an easy book to read. And it's not always easy to understand. There's some things in the Bible that are easy and pretty clear, easy to follow, such as Romans 13, for because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are the ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed, or in Romans 12 Bless those who persecute you Bless and do not curse them A couple of passages that are pretty easy to understand even if they're not particularly uh, enjoyable to do Paying taxes and blessing those who persecute you Then there's some others that are a bit more difficult to get our heads around And uh, there's one in 1 Corinthians I'm sure you're familiar with this one Every man who prays, I'll bring it up on the screen for you. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. But, uh, sorry, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. And then a few verses later, it says that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Angels? Gee, that's going to be tough. How's that? Okay, now i 'm going to get all tangled up because I had all this worked out. hands <laughs> how we go <clears throat> so some other difficult so that 's a difficult passage there what 's that all about? Does that mean that every married woman here should have put on her hat when we prayed at the start of the meeting? I have friends. They go to a church where that's their standard practice. The women are silent through the whole meeting, they don't pray, they don't do anything else there, and they wear a head covering for the whole meeting. Um, Maybe, before I prayed, I should have invited you married women to put on a hat or a scarf over your head or something. But are the unmarried women allowed to pray and prophesy without a head covering? And what's all this stuff about a symbol of authority—it's <laughs> the word of the Lord. A symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. It's hard enough to understand something like that. It takes a bit of work to try and figure out what that's all about. But then, if you look in the book of Ezekiel, you'll see a number of times in Ezekiel where it talks about wheels within wheels that move without turning. They move in every direction, but without turning. And they have wings and eyes and faces. Anyone that tells you that that sort of imagery is easy to understand is either having a lender view or trying to suck you into their end times apocalyptic cult. (laughs) The truth is there's some stuff in the Bible that we're probably never going to properly understand, at least in this life. But that shouldn't be surprising to us. For if God is truly the transcendent, Infinite eternal being that we claim he is, there should be some things about him and his word that we struggle to understand. I'm not God, have you noticed? And neither are you. So there should be some stuff about God that's hard to figure out. But that doesn't mean that we just give up, throw our hands up in the air and say, well, it's all too hard, I'm not even going to try. So there's some stuff we can understand, in fact there's some stuff we must understand. Jeremiah said, and I've quoted this verse a number of times, it's uh, one of my favourites. Jeremiah 9.23, I'll get past that. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man Boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practises steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Jeremiah nine twenty three and twenty four. So I take it as given from Jeremiah, if from nowhere else, that we should try to know and understand God as best we can in our human, mortal, finite capacities. But that means we need to remain humble, teachable, open to correction, willing to learn and desiring to grow. Before I get into the many tools available for Bible study, and that's a lot of what today is going to be about, is showing you some of those tools and explaining some of them to you. Before we get into that, there's one tool, so to speak, that we should use right at the start of every Bible study and, in fact, every Bible reading, and that's the tool of prayer. For when we pray, We're inviting the author of this book. We're inviting the author to teach it to us. What better way is there to understand any document than to have the author himself tell you about it? Bible study, for those who have tried it, I'm sure you'll find it's a bit like mining. It takes hard work. You don't find diamonds and gold normally. Laying in the gutter in the street If you want to dig up the most precious gems You've got to get out there And with a pick, an axe, a drill Whatever it may be Sorry, an axe would go blunt pretty quick But a pick and a drill And various other heavy machinery And dig and dig deep Some of the mines that have uh, dug up Some of the most precious gems Go down kilometres or more into the ground Mining is hard work, and Bible study can be hard work. But we have some tools available to us today that were unimaginable even 20 years ago, let alone 100 years ago and 1,000 years ago. And what I hope to do today is introduce you to some of those tools. And the most obvious, of course, is a good Bible in a good translation, one of these, in a good, reliable translation. Some are better than others, I've got to say. And uh, we heard uh, something on Friday night at the elders' equip that uh, Russ did some teaching there, which I'll talk about a little bit later on, that uh, is a matter of some concern. No single translation is perfect. As you know, there's dozens of English translations apart from other languages, German and Indonesian and everything else. No single translation is perfect Although there are some I suppose who claim there is You know of course the Bible wasn't written in English originally It wasn't even written in the King James English It was written in Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek So that means whatever we read in this book Has been translated from another language into English This all seems like Bible Study 101, but it's important that we we really understand this. Many words, I'm sure you know, many words, I'm sure you know, don't translate directly into a single English word. And some words, um, some English words require many, many other language words to translate. And when it's translated from Greek or whatever it may be into English, it doesn't always give us the full range of meanings of the original word. A good example of that is the English word love. I might say, and I do say, I love Vegemite on toast for breakfast. I love sitting by the Murray River on a warm afternoon in spring. I love my wife. I love my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Each time I use the word love there, it's a bit different, isn't it? I don't love Vegemite on toast. It's my preference. And it's, let's face it, it's Australian. If you don't love Vegemite on toast, are you really Australian? Ooh, rattling cages, am I? <laughs> Vegemite on toast is a preference. It isn't really a love. But when I say I love Vegemite on toast, you know what I'm talking about. Sitting by the Murray River is a pleasure. It's not really a love. It's something that brings me delight and relaxation, but it's not really a love. When I say I love my wife, that's true, but that's a deeply held commitment to a person, to do the right thing by that person, to protect, to care for, to commit my life to. When I say I love my Lord, That's a matter of life and death. The English language doesn't show us the differences between those words love, does it? The Greek language, however, does. Greek has several words. I think it's got five. Um, I didn't research this very deeply. I think it's got five words for love. And there's a couple that are used in the Bible. And uh, each time it's usually translated just as love into English, but they're quite different in their meaning. So a Bible that has some sort of consistency in the way it translates the words is going to make it easier for you to study the Bible properly. So some Bible translations are more literal than others. They're more word for word. They've taken the Greek and as close as they can, can given an English word as a replacement for it. Others are more dynamic, thought for thought, so they've got this concept in Greek that they then apply in English. So it may not be word for word, but it's the idea they're bringing across. Sometimes that might actually give a better interpretation of the original message, but when you're trying to do some deep study, it actually makes it a bit harder. There's no perfect translations, as I said. They're all helpful in some way, but some are better for serious study and some are better suited to devotions maybe or to prayer or something like that. The more literal translations, the ones that will help you in some serious study are the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, the English Standard, which is my preference. The more dynamic are the Amplified, the NIV, the New Living Translation, And at the extreme end are translations, or actually they're not translations as such, they're paraphrases like the contemporary English version and the Living Bible, the Passion Translation and the Message. The further you go away from literal, the more someone else has imposed their own ideas, their opinions, their prejudices, their theology on the text. That doesn't mean necessarily that they're wrong. But it does mean you need to be aware that this is their interpretation of it. And therefore, you need to be more careful when you use it for your primary text. Now, there's a good example of this in Romans chapter 1. Sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You all know this by heart, I'm sure. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful verse that is. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you want to know the context, go back and read through Romans chapter 7 where Paul talks about what a struggle it is to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing and I can't. It's a struggle for me. And then he concludes that, who will rescue us from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But the message puts it, with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. The The New American Standard there translates condemnation from the Greek word katakrina, every time it occurs in the the Bible, in the New Testament. Now it only actually occurs three times, that particular word, but the NASB is consistent in translating it as condemnation. But the message translates it differently all three times. So it says here, it's to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. Did I turn that off accidentally? Yep. In Romans 5.16, the same word katakrina is rendered as the dead-end abyss of separation from God. And then two verses later, Romans 5.18, the message puts it, all this trouble with sin and death. The message talks to us about the emotions of despair that condemnation should bring, about the sense of hopelessness, depression even, when you're aware of condemnation but it says exactly nothing about the all-important legal aspect of condemnation. Condemnation says, you are guilty, therefore you must die. The message diminishes the grace of God by making condemnation an emotional sort of response. It makes us feel gloomy, a continuous low-lying black cloud. Or it makes us aware of our separation from God. But it doesn't tell us anything about the fact that sin condemns us to death. I'm not telling you to never read the message. It's a helpful paraphrase. It can be encouraging. The first time I actually heard Romans chapter 8 read... To us, uh, I hadn't heard any of the message before that. Someone read Romans chapter 8 to us, and I thought it was fantastic. It really is. It captures something of emotion, as we've seen there, captures something of the emotion. And it re- was a refreshing way to hear it. But it's not really a suitable text for serious study of the Bible. When it translates the same word three different ways, you've got no hope of doing serious study. Of condemnation, because it's not telling you what condemnation is. That applies to other paraphrases and and dynamic translations of the Bible too, to more or lesser degrees. So, there's one warning I do need to give you here about the Passion Translation. Firstly, it's actually a paraphrase, not a translation. So it advertises itself falsely. I wasn't particularly aware of this. I knew it was a paraphrase, but I hadn't really looked into what it was. But Russ actually shared some stuff on Friday night about it that was uh, a bit more disturbing. In John fourteen sixteen, you all know the famous verse where Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. The King James puts it, another comforter to be with you forever. The Passion Translation renders that, I will ask the Father and he will give you another saviour. He will give you another saviour, the Holy Spirit of truth. Now last time I read my Bible, there's only one saviour, Jesus Christ. To take a word that has been translated... a a Greek word actually, and originally a Greek from the Greek text, it means helper, comforter, advocate, someone who draws alongside you. The Greek means nothing about saviour. They've taken an Aramaic translation of the Greek and the Aramaic word can have a sense of saviour and they've applied it here. Why would you change something that's made sense for 2,000 years? to something that suggests there's now two saviours. That disturbs me. Russ pointed out a few other serious problems with the Passion Translation on Friday night, and uh, but that one alone disturbs me enough that I couldn't in co- good conscience use the Passion Translation because if I did, that would be implying that I endorse it for everyone's use. And when it's telling me there's two saviours, I can't. So you might get some uh, some useful sense of what what uh, passage means from using the Passion Translation, but please don't use it for your study. Please, preachers, don't preach from the Passion Translation, or our Psalm readers. Getting back to useful Bibles, a study Bible. I've got a collection of books here I brought along for you to have a look at ones that I found extremely useful in my study. A study Bible is a pretty good, solid chunk of book. Now, a study Bible, you will find, has assorted notes in there. Now, I believe there's a a um, pointer on this. Is that right? No, that's all right. Which one's the pointer? The red line. Red line? line? Okay, here we go. You'll see down the bottom there, for those on that side, down the bottom of the screen there, there's assorted notes where someone has given some background. Sometimes it's historical background. Sometimes it's explanations of the words. Um, Apologise, it's not particularly clear up there, but I'll have all these books up here for you to have a look at afterwards if you're interested. Um you need to understand that the footnotes on the bottom of that page are not Holy Spirit inspired scripture. It's someone's interpretation just like the Passion Translation is. It's what someone is making sometimes, it's good, valuable stuff. But don't let the notes dictate to you what they mean, what the passage means. You'll also see I'll get to a little bit later on on the whoops, I should be pointing that way. The left hand side there is what's known as cross-references, also very useful. We'll get to that a bit later on as well. While I'm on the subject of helpful Bibles, a chronological Bible can be very useful. A chronological Bible takes the whole of the biblical text and arranges it in order of the events. So when you're reading, say, about uh, David out tending his sheep, you'll read that passage The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Or you'll read in, I think it's 1 Samuel 19, or somewhere around there, Saul hunting David, trying to kill him. And there'll be a psalm in there that David wrote about the bulls of Bashan attacking me, trying to gore me with their horns and things like that it gives you a good context for those psalms. We have all the psalms in the middle of our Bible, 150 of them all clumped together in one spot. But they're actually written at different times in history about different situations. So a chronological Bible is actually really helpful to give you a good context. The similar vein is a harmony of the Gospels, which is the four Gospels combined together in one continuous text in the order of the events that can give you some really good insights. Uh, for example, if you wanted to do a study of the abomination of desolation that talks about in Matthew 24, a harmony of the Gospels will actually show you what the other Gospels say about the same thing that Jesus was talking about but using different terms and help to give you a better understanding of this abomination of desolation that so many Christians have built a end-times theology around. Some other tools, and this, in my opinion, is by far the most important tool you can ever use uh, outside of your Bible, is a concordance. A concordance is a collection of Bible texts, uh, Bible words and references to the uh, particular scripture. Now, Some Bibles have a concordance, a brief concordance in the back. It might have 2,000 verses. It'll have the most famous one like John 3.16, if you're looking up love, God so loved the world will make reference to John 3.16. This beast is the best tool you will ever use for serious Bible study, called an exhaustive concordance. It has every single word in the Bible, in this case in the NIV Bible, including little words like is, at, and, the, him, little words like that, has every single word in there. Hence why it's such a beast of a book. But this will be the best tool you will ever use for serious Bible study. Now, most exhaustive concordances, actually, firstly, you'll see up on the left-hand side of the screen, I've put a, a circle around this is love in the, uh, you look up love, the word love and this will give you every reference to love in the NIV Bible but it will also tell you that there are other terms beloved, loved, lovely, loving kindness etc that are related terms and it gives you a little bit of the context by telling you the uh, part of the verse and you'll see down the right hand column there's numbers those numbers are very useful So this exhaustive concordance tells us that the word love occurs 551 times in the NIV translation of the Bible. And it shows us, of course, every single instance of that word. The numbering on the right-hand side tells us the Hebrew or Greek word that is translated by a numbering system. This is Hebrew you've got in front of you there. And uh, the better concordances, exhaustive concordances, will have a list of those words in the back. And you can also then see how they've translated that particular word elsewhere in the Bible. So they won't also always have translated as love, they might have translated as lovely. And it will show you where, how many times they've translated those other words. Now, on the subject of love, the exhaustive concordance will also tell you Something interesting about when Jesus was reinstating Peter, you recall after the resurrection, Jesus came to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter said, you know that I love you, Lord. Three times this happened. Now if you take note down the right hand side there, you see the first time Jesus said, do you truly love me more than these? It's got the number 26. That's the number of the particular Greek word in the list at the back but Peter answers with a different word for love Lord you know that I love you Greek word 5797 in the back of your concordance Peter's answering differently to what Jesus is asking him The the English Bible doesn't tell you that and the last time Jesus asks Peter in the same terms that Peter was responding. That's something for you to study and think about. You won't find that in most English translations, but an exhaustive concordance will tell you little interesting little things like that that give you a bit of food for thought and greater understanding. An exhaustive concordance like that will set you back anywhere from 30 to $60 at Koorong or other Christian bookstores, it's worth every cent. If you want to do some serious Bible study and you think $30 or $60 is a bit of a stretch for you financially, let me know I'll buy you one. It's worth it for me for you to have tools to study the Bible properly. Second most valuable tool is cross-references. Some Bibles, as I showed before, have cross-references in a centre or a side column. There's others like the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. This is pretty handy. I'll leave up there for you to have a look at, which has chains of topics through the Bible. So you can trace the development of a topic like baptism, for example, all the way through. If your Bible doesn't have cross-references in there, there's a helpful book. It's an old one called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge which is a book of cross-references. So you can see the start of that. If you can see it clearly on the screen there. The beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. If you want to look at other references about the beginning, Proverbs 8.22-31, Ephesians 3.9, Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1.10 does that say or Hebrews seven three, Hebrews 13.8. Really, really useful tool. Treasury of Scripture knowledge. I use one every time I prepare a sermon, I use the Treasury of Scripture knowledge. Next up, topical Bibles. I don't have one to show you here today, um, but... Topical Bible is essentially a concordance of topics and uh, rather than a concordance of words. There's a few, Naves Topical Bibles, one of the best known, there's uh, Torrey's Topical and various others. Uh, Naves lists about 80 references to baptism. Um, and many of those references actually don't use the word baptism or a related word in there. So, for example... It will have Noah and the ark and it will have Moses and the people crossing the Red Sea as references to baptism. Neither of which actually say anything about baptism but illustrate the concept. A topical Bible will show those things to you. Knaves also has a hundred or more references to hell and a couple of hundred references to heaven. So if you're studying one of those topics, those concepts, A topical Bible is a really useful thing to have. So the three most important tools for serious Bible study, after you've settled on a good Bible translation, are an exhaustive concordance, a cross-reference like the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge and a topical Bible like Knaves. Plenty of other useful tools. Uh, There's Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, there's... uh, um, Dictionaries of Greek and Hebrew words like vines and mounts' dictionary of New Testament words, there's Vincent's word studies, Robertson's word pictures to help you understand some of the background of some of these words. There's encyclopedias, atlases, histories, cultural aids. The list goes on and on and on. There's almost nothing you can't find out about the Bible through some of these tools and reference books. If you can think of a question about the Bible, you'll be able to find an answer or find how to get the answer from some of these. Many of the tools I've mentioned are quite old. The benefit of that is they're usually public domain because their copyright has expired so you can get them for free online or in software. Um, The other benefit is they've been tried and tested by decades, even centuries of use and found to be still useful to this day. Vast numbers of these tools are available online Um, and there's vast numbers of more modern tools but very rarely will they be free. If you're just starting out in serious study, use what you can get for free. You won't exhaust your understanding of the Bible with the free tools. If you don't like paper much anymore and lots of you don't anymore, There's plenty of Bible software programs to help you. Many of those combine all these tools, the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge and and, uh, exhaustive concordances and all those sorts of things into that one piece of software. A number of those Bible programs are available for free as well. The one I use almost exclusively is called The Word. It's pretty simple. It's easy to navigate. It's got a number of free Bible translations, including the ESV, which is my favourite, and various other tools available within it, and it's free. You can buy add-ons for it that will cost you some money and more modern translations and things like that. Um, There's others, eSword, Olive Tree, Word Search, Accordance. The best known probably is Logos. Um, You can get a free version of that, or you can spend thousands of dollars upgrading Logos for serious uh, theological study. You can spend as much or as little as you want. There's excellent websites for Bible study. Bible Gateway is a really good one. It's got, I don't know, 20 or 30 different English translations available to help you see how others have interpreted or translated that passage. Very few of you bring a printed Bible to church anymore. Teach does, good on you Tish When I ask you to open your Bibles Most of you, if you do anything at all Will fire up your phone Or in some cases a laptop or a, a notepad a pad or something, iPad um, That's not a bad thing If you can ignore all your Facebook notifications popping up And focus on the sermon It's good to be able to have all these tools In your pocket wherever you go Personally, I still like Bible I can sit in my lap and look at. And um, if you use a smartphone for everything, there's a lot of these software programs are available as apps. There's the ESV Bible as an app. There's a literal word which is a New American Standard. U version, NIV Bible. You name it, it's probably available for your phone and probably for free. I'm personally not convinced you can do serious study of the Bible on a phone or even on a laptop. I use the laptop almost all the time, but I find it a challenge. You don't have enough screen real estate to do it. Particularly on a phone, you can't put documents and translations side by side on a phone. Using a phone is a bit like using your GPS for navigation. It will get you there in the end. But you'll be following that and you won't see any of the landmarks along the way. You won't see any of the context of where you're going. Using the old-fashioned paper Bibles, you see that context. You see the landmarks around it. You'll see things around that text that you didn't notice before that might shed some light on it as well. And you'll also be able to... Get back more easily to where you were, and if you use the same Bible all the time, you'll eventually learn where things are in your Bible. Someone might say, "Oh, where's that particular verse?" You'll think, "Can't remember the reference, but I know it's around about there on the left-hand side of the page because you're familiar with your Bible." That doesn't work with a phone. Good girl. Regardless of how you choose to do your Bible study, we have so many resources available to us today, there's no excuse for not getting getting your teeth into it. I'll only make a very brief mention about commentaries. Commentaries are helpful, but they're like the footnotes in the study Bible. They're someone's interpretation of it. If you must use commentaries, do your own work first and then check on a commentary. If you found something that uh, no one else has seen in there in the last 2,000 years of scholarship and Bible study, you're probably going to be wrong. (laughs) Which makes me question how the Passion Translation came up with another saviour. No one's done that for 2,000 years. If he had worked by that principle, he would have chosen a better term, I think. Commentaries are a good tool to use at the end of your, your study, not at the start. I won't talk about different methods for study. There's a few that's in the handout notes, uh, which will be available. There's a Dropbox link will be in the, uh, the church newsletter. You'll be able to download it and you'll be able to click on those rather than have to type them in. Why bother studying such an ancient document? It's thousands of years old. How relevant can it really be for today? And, let's face it, there's millions probably of websites sprung up around study of the Bible. Why not just do what someone else's work let someone else do the work and just read what they say about it? The first and most important reason of course is that one in Jeremiah nine. That a wise man will boast that he knows and understands the Lord. The Bible's the only reliable way the only way to get detailed information about God that you can trust, that you can count on. There's another important reason to do it. Biblical literacy levels may be at the lowest they've been for 500 years. That's to the shame of modern Christians. So those two reasons should be sufficient for us. But there's more. There's biblical examples for us as well. Well, Jesus was critical of the Pharisees, they at least searched the scriptures. They didn't find what they should have found in there, but they searched the scriptures at least. They were diligent about it. We'll come back to them in a minute. We also have the example of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. They heard Paul preach, and they didn't accept it just because Paul preached it. They searched the scriptures daily to see if it was so. They studied their Bibles to make sure that what Paul, the great apostle, was preaching to them was true. I might say a bit more about that next week and how to hear a sermon. But we're also vulnerable to deception today. That's a direct result, I think, of not knowing our Bibles. There's cults and there's pseudo-Christian religions springing up all around us and even established branches of the Christian church are straying away from truth and rejecting truth. We shouldn't be surprised probably. Jesus warned us about that, didn't he? Matthew 24, speaking of the signs at the end of the age, Matthew 24, verse 24. Jesus said, for false Christs, And false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Are you a Christian? If you are, you're the elect. And this is a warning that there will be false Christs and false prophets in the end times that will lead astray If possible, even the elect. That's a frightening thought. How do you counter this danger? Hebrews 5 verse 12 and onwards tells us, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do you distinguish good from evil? How do you recognise false Christs and false prophets? get your teeth into the solid solid food of the word of god that takes study it doesn't take superficial reading it takes study there's no shortcut to that discernment you need to pray over to read to meditate and to study your bibles I've given you plenty of tools to get you started in your Bible study today. You'll be amazed at what you find when you start digging in. If you haven't done it before, you'll be stunned at some of the things you find there. Someone has said that the Bible is a pool shallow enough for a child to paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. You will gain wisdom and understanding regardless of your IQ, no matter your level of education whether you're a good reader or a poor reader I challenge you to try to plumb the depths of this book let me know when you've discovered everything there is to know in there I won't be holding my breath you will never in this life get to the depths of the Bible can you say that about any other book in history I very much doubt it. This book speaks of Jesus Christ on every single page. But be warned, it's not just designed that we should increase our intellectual knowledge of Jesus as if intellectual understanding can somehow save us. And it's not just enough that we should just read the Bible or even that we should study the Bible. This book is designed to lead us to him, to lead us to Jesus. The Pharisees I mentioned were masters of Bible study, but they, they missed the most important thing in the scriptures. Jesus rebuked them in John 5.39. He said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Don't make the mistake the Pharisees made. Search the scriptures for sure. But search for Jesus Christ in there. You'll find him on every page. He might not be explicitly there, it might be implicit, it might be types, shadows, pictures, prophecies, might be examples, might be patterns, but he permeates every page of this book. This book bears witness about him. the word of God will always achieve the purposes that he sent it for. For some, that purpose is salvation. For others, that purpose is judgment. Which will it be for you? Search for Jesus on those pages. Let's close in prayer. Father, we know... That all of scripture has been breathed out by your Holy Spirit. That it teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us and trains us in righteousness. We know Lord that the only way that we can keep our path pure is by living according to your word. For too often Lord we hear it only and don't do what it says. I confess, Lord, that I have too often hardened my heart to the voice of your spirit. Forgive me, I pray, forgive us, I pray, and have mercy on us. Forgive us for ignoring your word. Forgive us for ignoring the promptings of your spirit. Your word is a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. Lord, would you break our hard hearts. Would you give us soft hearts that lean on you at all times? Pray, Lord, that you will give us an ever-increasing hunger for your word. I pray that this book will truly become a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Father, I confess that I've listened to the voice of the world, that we've listened to the voice of the world more than we've listened to your voice more than we've listened to your word. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us. Sanctify us by the truth of your word. Would you make us like David, whose delight was in your law. May we treasure it more than our daily bread. Help me, God, to be more disciplined in studying your word. Help me to treasure it and meditate on it day and night. Lord, I commit myself and I pray for my friends here that we will commit ourselves to the renewing of our mind by your word so that we might be transformed from within and conformed to the image of your dear Son. To your glory, Father, and in the perfect name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.